Well, last week, we kicked off a new series looking at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, a historic account of the early church uh, written by Luke, who I had mentioned uh, was a Gentile, the only Gentile to have uh, a, a book in the Bible, two, uh, very educated, well-educated, held in high regard. And, you know, it's important for us to remember, as I mentioned some of these things last week, but uh, the greatest historians of the ancient world have, have had to sit under great scrutiny, uh, whether it's Josephus, who many of you have heard of, or Tacitus, or uh, Pliny. Uh, these different guys, um, their historical records are very scrutinized. And Luke, he's actually in that category as a historian. Uh, sometimes we just kind of think of them as like Bible writers, but Luke is considered a historian. And uh, he's actually esteemed uh, among many as one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world, with a higher reputation even than many of these even that I just mentioned, uh, as his work has been really scrutinized more than others because it's also a religious work, so it's, it's even under greater scrutiny. So, but to clarify, because I said that his, some of his work is some of the most accurate out there, but there's obviously some accounts, like when he writes about an angel appearing to Mary, uh, or certain miracles, they, they can't be 100% verified. There's no forensic evidence or physical proof, so to speak. We have eyewitnesses who are long gone. But there have been hundreds, hundreds of verifiable facts, both with forensics and physical evidence that have been verified that Luke has made claims to. And all these things have perfectly backed up Luke's claims in his gospel as well as in the book of Acts as both historians and archaeologists uncover more and more and more. And he really is regarded as the things that he mentions in, in the Gospel of Luke as well as Acts, I mean, they are impeccable in their detail. So, for example, like names of rulers or certain timelines or certain events or descriptions of certain cities or descriptions of certain buildings, uh, the kind of city activity that was going on, all of that has been verified and is accurate, historically accurate. And a lot of his, like, modern-day historians look at his work and just say, gosh, this guy, he, he really was a keen observer, and he's accurate. All this stuff is backed up that we've found. Everything lines up perfectly. So when it comes to the unverifiable things, such as miracles, some of those things, these things can't necessarily be forensically confirmed by us today. But since they're being accompanied by these perfectly accurate facts elsewhere with some of these other things, uh, at least from a secular standpoint, it has to be held in a fair context. So it can't necessarily be confirmed, but you also can't deny it either. And, and of course, you know, those that are against the Bible, the Word of God, they will just say, oh, that's just bogus, uh, but they're being unfair uh, because they have to take it in context of this very accurate document. Uh, so we have to at least hold it in a like, well, I mean, he's accurate in everything else, so we have to at least judge it accordingly. Now, another thing, though, about Luke is that Luke did write this closer to the actual events, these eyewitness events that we can't verify, at least physically verify. He wrote these things closer to those events, and he points out that even some of these events that are unverifiable to us they were verifiable when he wrote them. And that's important. That's very important. Though we can't say, you know, whatever it is that we can't prove physically, he's writing at a time when they were provable. So look what he says. He says in, in uh, verse 3 here, and I haven't read through the, the whole text here, but look at verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Many proofs. Remember, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, and he's like, Theophilus, look, he, Jesus lived, and it was proven that he suffered all these things. There's proof, there's evidence, you know it, I know it, so that's important for us. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's speaking of the resurrection to Theophilus and saying, Theophilus, it's proven. It's proven. You know it. You know it, and I know it. So that's important to understand that he's making that claim in a day when they could actually test the claims. So when he's writing this, he's giving this historical account to Theophilus to give credence and evidence to the life and the work and the resurrection of Christ as well as the work of the church. And he's putting his money where his mouth is as he's writing to this 
Theophilus, this Roman official, and says, Theophilus, you know it's true. It's been verified. You know, eyewitness testimony by many eyewitnesses and by many proofs that are so close in time to, to, to Theophilus, that's very important in us considering Luke's account. And it's going to be important for us even today as we consider what we're going to see in today's sermon. So let me pray for the text. We're going to be in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, going all the way through 26 today. I just want to ask the Lord as we look at some, um, some interesting and also kind of challenging, somewhat confusing topics, uh, that the Holy Spirit would help us, lead us into truth, help us to understand, help us to uh, deepen our faith, our trust uh, in God's will, uh, and ask Him to, to be our, 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 our lead and our guide uh, in every decision we make in life. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the prophets and the apostles, the writers of the Old and New Testament, those who wrote down the things that they saw, the things that your Holy Spirit inspired them to write for our benefit, for our growth, for our worship, for our transformation and sanctification. And we ask God that as we look at this story, this history of, of our history, our family history, that you'd help us to learn more about where we came from as a church, how you work among us, how you want to work among us, and how you lead us. We thank you that you give us the many, many just stories and descriptions in your word of what your church did, how they responded to hardship, to struggle, to trial, to persecution. Holy Spirit, help us to see them as our example, the model that we pursue. Do that work in us. Change us and transform us. Complete the work that you began in your church. Thank you for your faithfulness towards us, your long-suffering. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to read through uh, 12 all the way to 26, so we get a big picture of it, and then we'll kind of go through it in pieces. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, who is a different Judas, he's also known as Thaddeus, Judas the son of James, so not Judas Iscariot. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons there in this upper room was 120, about 120. So this isn't like this tiny little living room, it's a pretty sizable room, 120 people. And Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, Judas, was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in this ministry. And then Luke adds this parenthetical thought. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Very terrible description of his death. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field where he died was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And that's actually a place that's still known uh, in Jerusalem. For it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And another Psalm says, let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what he's saying here is that we need to replace Judas's spot. There, there's, there's supposed to be 12 apostles. And we need to 
replace him because he never really was ever truly an apostle in that sense because he was never actually born again, regenerate. So we need to replace him. We need a 12th apostle. So it's got to be someone who was with us from the beginning. And so they put forward two, two choices. Joseph, also called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and also Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So it's an interesting passage, and one that's going to be like many that we're going to run across when we see sort of an account of something happening, but not necessarily an account that gives us a specific direction on, on how we should do things. So it's important for us to see that there's times in the Word where the Word gives us actual instructions, says do this, do this, don't do this. And there's other times that the Word simply explains what happened, it just describes what happened. So that's the difference between description and prescription. So sometimes the Word just describes an event, right? Describes David having concubines. But that's not a prescription to say it's okay for us to do that too. It just describes what's going on. So we have description and prescription. So in this text here, it's not an instance where the Word is prescribing a method of decision-making, saying when you've got big decisions, just, just throw the dice. God will figure it out. But then that said, because it is not just Luke's writing and his intention in, in play here, it is also God's Word, and God's Word is here for teaching us. There's also a number of things that it does reveal to us. There's some things that are described to us that we can pattern ourselves after. Because often when the Word simply describes things, it does give us a description of an example for us. So it can be hard for us to figure out when something that is descriptive is something we should pattern ourselves after. And sometimes when the Word describes something, it's something we shouldn't pattern ourselves after. And sometimes it's hard to figure out which is which. This is why we need the whole counsel of God, not just the one text. You're not going to get everything out of just Acts chapter 1. Well, should I do this or should I not? You have to see the whole counsel of Scripture to say, okay, these parts, this is a good description of what I should model, but this part, eh, not so much. All right, so we need the whole counsel of God and help in that. So let's look at the story itself, and then we're going to see what this does describe well to us. So Judas had taken his life. Now these 11 men are wondering, what do we do? And we can learn a lot by seeing what they did, how they responded to this. The first thing they did is they gathered together. They were together. They didn't isolate. They weren't confused and scattered. They were of one accord. And being unified is a very big theme in Acts that we're going to see time and time again. And notice also that the, the loss of Judas didn't deter them from gathering. They could have become easily discouraged or, or scared. They could have scattered from one another because it was just too hard. Well, if this happened to Judas, it could happen to me. I mean, they could have kind of distanced themselves, especially out of fear of the Jews who were seeking and wanted to sort of persecute them a bit. But instead, they pressed in together. They didn't scatter. They didn't isolate. They didn't distance themselves. They, they pressed in when things got intense, got difficult. And in that accord that they had, secondly, they also do the right thing, which is they look to God's word. That's the other thing they did. They cite two scriptures from the Psalms to point to the fact that Judas's failure was prophesied, but also that he needs to be replaced. So they got together, and they're just looking through the Psalms, like, what do we make of this thing? We don't know what's going on. This is crazy. Let's look at the Old, you know, all they had was the Old Testament, of course. Let's look through and see if this, was this prophesied somewhere? And they, they, they find it. They go, that's what that meant. We didn't, we didn't know what that meant. That's what that means. And so they set forth the parameters. Peter sets forth the parameters. An apostle must be someone who witnessed the ministry, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus from the beginning, from the baptism of Jesus by John all the way up to the ascension. That's the parameter. He says an apostle must be someone who's with us from the beginning, who was taught by Jesus himself the whole time. Now that reveals to us also, we don't really think about this too much, 
but it reveals us, and it's important for us to know that Jesus didn't just have 12 men with him for three years. That's kind of the picture we see in all the, the paintings and the movies and all that kind of stuff. But he didn't just have 12 men for three years. There were many who witnessed his ministry. We see uh, earlier in the Gospels, there were 70 people that were sent out. Here, there's 120 people. There's many people who witnessed his ministry and traveled with him, probably to, to some different degree. You know, maybe some went on certain journeys, others didn't. There's some that were maybe like kind of, you know, on the frequent flyers club and they were like there for everything. And some were maybe only there when it was up in Capernaum. You know, we don't really know, but there was many disciples who followed Jesus and his ministry from the beginning, who witnessed from the beginning. So look at it again at verse 21. So one of the men, Peter says, who have accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And two names rise to the top. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and also Matthias. Apparently, these two men both fit the qualification. They were both men of character, they're faithful, and of course, they were eyewitnesses. Now, why is it important that these are eyewitnesses? Luke points this out to Theophilus for an important reason. He's pointing out to Theophilus who again, we kind of think is maybe going to have some influence with some higher-ups in Rome to kind of help the higher-ups sort of understand what Christianity is. He's pointing out to Theophilus that our faith is not built just on what people think Jesus is. Our faith isn't built on what they heard Jesus is. Our, Our faith isn't built on what people feel like Jesus is. Our faith, in in part... And the church specifically is built on eyewitnesses. It's built on fact. It's built on fact. As Luke even says, many provable facts. Now again, we're 2,000 years removed, so some of these provable facts can't be, you know, forensically proven today, but they're provable then, which gives us a lot of comfort, a lot of confidence. And think of the many historical events that we weren't alive for, maybe before even the invention of photography or video. You've got all these eyewitnesses that have written down these historical accounts. When you have hundreds that agree on some of these things written down in history, you go, that's probably legit, especially when all the verifiable facts surrounding it actually agree with it, right? You go, "Eh, I'm not going to question that because that's verifiable. You got all these people. Paul writes that there was 500 people that witnessed the resurrected Jesus He died in front of them, and later he was around for many days, and 500 people witnessed this. That's that's solid right there. That's solid. So Luke's saying to Theophilus, look, I can prove all this to you. You know it, and I know it. And again, Theophilus was a believer. He's not like trying to convince him. He's just kind of giving him, you know, kind of the, 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 the confidence. Now, interestingly, Jesus also, I'm sorry, Luke also mentions Jesus's mother and Jesus's brothers. Now, his brothers, his natural brothers, his half-brothers, Joseph and Mary's kids that came after Jesus, his brothers were skeptics early on. But one of his brothers, James, went on to write the epistle of James. That was Jesus' half-brother. I was at a, a baseball game um, seven or eight years ago with an old friend of mine from, um, from grade school. This guy's not a believer. He's a real, uh, real rough around the edges kind of guy, real fun guy to hang out with and go to a baseball game with. Um, and the whole night, all he wanted to talk about was Jesus and faith and religion and the Jews and Abraham. And how does it all, and I'm sitting there going like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, you know, we're watching a baseball game and he's just, and he's, uh, he's Italian, so he's like, speaks real loud with his hands and stuff. And I'm like, everyone around me like is hearing our conversation. And, and so eventually he, he starts doing, you know, the, the, the typical stuff that a lot of people are like, ah, oh, well, you know, uh, the, the Bible was, you know, written and changed and all this kind of stuff. And um, you know, and his followers just, they just, they just made stuff up, you know, it was just, it was, it was all false, you know, and, and, um, so eventually I, I asked him, I said, uh, David, if his brother's name is Devin, I said, David, if you claimed to be God and perfect, all those things, what do you think your brother Devin would say? <laughs> he just started laughing. He's like, are you serious? He's like, he would never, ever believe me. 
I was like, why? He goes, because I'm not God, right? I was like, right, right, exactly. I was like, did you know that Jesus' own mother and his brothers eventually had faith in him? We don't know exactly what happened to Mary, but his brothers even died for a, a lie? Would, would Devin die? Like, because like, he, he was claiming that this was like a big scam, you know, that him and the disciples were just going around kind of making money and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, you know, all of them died for their faith, even his own brothers. Do you think Devin would do that? And he's like, and, and he just looked at me, he goes, that's a really good point. I was like, I know, <laughs> because it's true. <laughs> but that's the thing is like, we have, Luke even mentions, by the way, Theophilus, his mom and his brothers were there. So that should also tell you something, right? These guys aren't being fooled. We didn't just pick the people that we can kind of dupe into this thing. The people that know him best, even, they were with us. They were there to the end. So remember, this, this is Luke's historic account, meant to defend the faith of these higher-ups. So he's saying, we didn't just pick out our, our buddies or the people that we can kind of fool and kind of trick, the, the weak-minded people, because that's the claim a lot of times, like, oh, people who are learning their religion, there's weak-minded people. We didn't just go out and say, hey, you want to come follow us? And uh, there's this guy. And uh, No, these were eyewitnesses that by their own testimony said, no, I saw it as well. And even his mother and his brothers were with us. So Theophilus, this is provable. This is real. This is not fake. This is not make-believe. This is, this is not a fairy tale. And that's what's unique about the apostles. The apostles were eyewitnesses. And in our own way, we too, church, are to go forward not as reporters of the good news. You ever think about a news report? The reporters that are on scene, they didn't see what happened. They want to interview witnesses. You and me, we're not to be reporters, just going reporting the good news. No, we're to be witnesses of the good news. We go out and we tell what we have seen God do in our life, not just report some historic event. Right, but that's just that's an appetizer for a future sermon, so we're going to get back on track here. So they gather together. They're in one accord. There's unity. There's agreement. And in this unity, they come up with a way to choose one. They can't choose both. They'd probably like to. These two guys are probably great guys. They're really good choices. They're both totally qualified, but they're stuck. I remember when my, my boys were younger, and you moms and dads have probably done this before, where you're playing a game with your boys or your kids, and and uh, only one can really win the game, and then you just feel really bad because it's usually the older one that wins, and the, the younger one gets really sad. And so you kind of make up things. You go, well, the winner of the best presentation goes to Liam, and the winner of the most creative way to apply that goes to Micah. You're both winners! And that's kind of what you do as parents, right? You, you let both of them win, but they can't do that here. Even though both these guys are qualified, think about it, they're both qualified they're both good choices, and there's not like a, yeah, but this guy cooks better, so let's bring him on the road. You know, they're, just, they're both good, and they can only choose one, so they can't pick both. So what they do is they, they cast lots, which is like drawing straws or putting their names in the hat and pulling one out, and that's where the story gets a little interesting. Now, at this time, casting lots was a, a very common occurrence. It wasn't really seen as luck, just like throwing the dice. It wasn't, it wasn't seen as gambling by the Jews. Uh, it was a way that the, the Jews at this time would entrust themselves to God's sovereignty with a, when a clear path wasn't evident to them. Now that said, at this time, the Holy Spirit had not been given to the church to lead them and to guide them, and that's very important and significant for us to understand that their choice was made because they hadn't yet even had the Holy Spirit. And though I don't believe that Scripture here is at all prescribing to us to, to cast lots for tough decisions... We also shouldn't read the story and think that the, these disciples were just kind of being half-hearted or, or lazy or just superstitious. Uh, they weren't just sitting around going, I don't know, just, just do any, mini miny, mo. I don't, just pick one. It, what, that's not what they were doing here. Uh, they were doing their due diligence. They did everything they could in order to discern God's will. They weren't being lazy. They weren't being half-hearted. But God didn't tell them which guy to pick, so, and they're both good. And I, I think through this, I go, I, I think honestly, like the fact that they actually whittled it down to two on their own, like that was pretty good. Because I'm thinking like there's probably more than just two. And somehow they whittled down to two. I'm going, hey, nice job, guys. That was, that was, that's pretty solid. So these apostles, they do give us an example of what we ought to do when a decision in our life isn't clear. Right? Uh, these 120, they were in one accord with each other. They came together with a desire 
for each other. They were in prayer together. They sought counsel among each other. They looked to God's word together. The word was the foundation. They looked to the apostles for guidance, they, and then they agreed on a way forward. There, there's a lot of good stuff here that we can look at and say, that's a, that's a lot of good example on how to make a good decision when a clear decision isn't clear. So in short, we can see that they were in the word of God, in prayer, and in community. Those are the three things that they were doing, and they did them all combined together. They're in the word and prayer with each other. So this brings us to some questions about decision-making and making decisions in accordance with God's will, which is a big, tough topic. I think all of us have wondered oftentimes with a decision, especially a big decision, what is God's will? God, what do you want me to do? So I think it's important for us to consider this, this phrase, God's will. There's two distinct ways that the word uses that phrase in the word. One, when it just talks about God's will, uh, we, we would call it maybe his revealed will. And then also we have his concealed will. Others call it his will of command or his will of decree. So in your notes, I've combined the two uh, as his revealed will of command and his concealed will of decree. Now his revealed will of command, this is what he reveals in his word. These are his very commands. Do not kill, don't gossip, flee youthful lusts, humble yourself. That is God's will. That is God's revealed will. It's not a secret. That's what he wants us to do and not do. That's his revealed will of command. These are the things he's commanded to us. We don't have to question it. We don't have to wonder, is it God's will? Should I be prideful today? I'm not sure. No, it's already been revealed. Don't be prideful today. Be humble. So these things aren't hidden, and it's always his will to not gossip, to flee useful lust, to not kill. It's always his will to do and not do the things that he has revealed. Those ones are kind of easy. But then there's his concealed will of decree. This is the will of God that we usually talk about, or the, the will that we, we wish we knew. And I look back at my life, and I think about God's will of decree, the things that he has decreed, that he has said, this is going to happen. He brings about, but he doesn't show us. He doesn't show us ahead of time. So I think about the fact that God concealed to me for many, 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 many years that I would plant a church. I, I, didn't, I didn't plan that. I didn't know that. That wasn't written anywhere. Uh, or that I'd have two boys. Uh, you know, I can pray all the time when I'm 20, 21, like, God, show me how many kids am I? But he keeps that concealed. He's going to decree it. It's going to come to pass, but he keeps that concealed. So there's all these different things. I look at the past year. He kept concealed to me that my dad would pass away. I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was going to be God's will working out in my life and my dad's life. I, I, I could not have seen this stuff coming. Those things were concealed from me yet he decreed them as his will. Now, some concealed things, like the things I just mentioned, he eventually does reveal to us. They become obvious and evident because they happen. If they happened, clearly it was God's will. Yet there's some things that he's not going to reveal to us. And we saw this last week. He said, is it now that you're going to come and restore all things? And he says, that's not for you to know the times and the seasons. So it sounds like he's saying, I'm not going to reveal that to you. That's going to be my concealed will of decree. It's not for you to know. But here's what I do want you to know. I want you right now to go and make disciples of all nations. So I will reveal this to you, but I'm going to keep this part concealed. So that's kind of like him saying, you know, it's not my will for you to know my will, but it is my will for you to know my will. Right? That's what he kind of just said to them. It's not my will for you to know my will, but it's my will to know my will. That's weird, that's confusing, it's kind of funny, it's con contradictory it seems. But we need to understand that God has his revealed will that he wants us to know and be led by today to build your life upon, to be the springboard for all your decisions, and to have your will conformed to. So his revealed will, he wants you to know that, he's already revealed it in his word, and he wants your will to be conformed to that revealed will. But he also has his concealed will that is for him to know, and he's going to decide if he chooses to reveal it to you or not, and that's up to him. It's kind of none of your business. If he shows it to you, praise the Lord, what a gift. If he doesn't, you can still trust him. 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things, okay, my word here is concealed things, right? That's the word I used. The secret things, the concealed will of God, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. So those things that you want to know, just remind yourself, those belong to the Lord. Now, I'm not saying don't pray. I'm not saying don't ask the Lord, for, but just, just remind yourself. If you're frustrated in your prayer and you're, you're just like, oh, I don't know, just remind yourself, you know what? These belong to the Lord. He doesn't have to show me. These are the Lord's. They're not mine. It's, it's my life, but these belong to the Lord. Because at the end of the day, it's actually not your life. You've been purchased for a price. Right? So the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but oh, here's the good news. The things that are revealed, those belong to us and to our children forever. And why? So that we may do all the words of his law. So God actually reveals to us his will so that we can live in accordance with him. So we can have our will conformed. I mean, what a beautiful verse that is. God keeps some things secret, but guess what? He doesn't keep everything secret, and the stuff he reveals is for us and for our children so that we can do all the words of this law. That's good news, church. You can, you can pursue God. You can live in accordance with God because he's given you everything you need for life and godliness, even if he keeps some things concealed. I wish I knew the future that God held for me, but that's not for me to know. Yet God does desire for me and for my boys to know his revealed will. His revealed will, which gets me through today. I don't worry about tomorrow and his concealed will for tomorrow. I want to get through today. And God has revealed his will to me to get through today. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And he clarifies what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when we present ourselves as a living sacrifice, then when that happens, we are transformed by our minds being renewed so that we can discern the will of God. In other words, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here it's clear. God desires for us to be able to discern his will. Now he's not saying that if we do this, we're going to be able to foretell the future or know his secrets. No, his desire is that our minds are so transformed conformed even to his will, to his truth, that we can now discern the will of God. And in other words, Paul says, discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what he wants. He wants us to be able to look in God's word and say, ah, I see God's revealed will clearly. Because our sin and our preferences and our will clouds our reading of the scriptures. So we need our minds transformed so we can read the scriptures clearly so we can apply God's revealed will clearly in our life now how do we get this transformation well jesus said to his father sanctify them by the truth your word is truth it is the word of god that not only reveals to us what is good acceptable and perfect which is god's revealed will the word of god is what reveals to us god's revealed will we know it it's right there it's clear it's written in black and white that's his revealed will but the word also is the power of god that works in us it's the word of god that actually changes us Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word is alive and active, church. It works in you to reveal to you God's will, his revealed will, so that you can live all the, 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 the purposes of God in your life, is what Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. That's what God's word does. It works in you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is. It is the word of God, which he says is at work in you, believers. God's word is at work in you. You might not actually feel it all the time or sense it all the time, but it's at work in you. 
If God's word goes in you, it's not going to return void. It will work in you to transform you and conform you to the image of Christ. Second Peter, we just went over this a couple months ago, Second Peter chapter 1, and I already mentioned it in passing earlier today. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, including decision-making. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Your mind is to be transformed, is to be changed, is to be sanctified. And when it is, it's renewed, as Paul says in Romans 12. Your will becomes conformed more and more to his will. So the things that you want are the things that he wants. So that when you're in a place of testing, that's the, one of the key words there in Romans 12. So when you're tested, when you're in a place of testing, whatever that is for you, right? You're, you're, those times when you don't know what to do, there's a hardship, you're perplexed, you don't know what the next step is, you have a decision to make. When you're tested, you'll be able to discern firstly what is the revealed will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when our minds are transformed like that, those things that test you, those things that confuse you, that cause you maybe to become paralyzed, now that decision, sometimes, sometimes that decision then becomes second nature to you. The choice is more clear, right? I, I can think of a lot of examples where maybe 15 years ago, I was really perplexed. Should I do this? Should I do that? Now, later, I see so much more clearly God's revealed will. And I go, why did I even consider that other option back then? Obviously, this is the better way because now I understand God's revealed will. That was just an immaturity thing. I didn't understand certain, you know, uh, parts of, of Christ's teaching, whatever it might be. I'm, things when I was younger as a Christian were harder decisions to make because of certain temptations and kind of the flesh that sort of clouded my reading of the word. But now later, as my mind has been conformed and transformed more to the image of Christ, now God's revealed will is just so obvious. I'm going, Man, this is easy to make this choice. Why was that so hard back then? So sometimes the choice becomes easier when you're conformed to the revealed will of God, but not always as in the case of these apostles trying to pick just one of two guys. There's not a clear answer, so there's not always a clear answer. But you can at least choose in confidence. Because like these men, as you're being transformed, your mind is being conformed to the image of Christ, you're understanding the revealed will of God more and more and more and more. Now you actually make a choice in confidence, in conviction, because you're not only firm now in discerning God's revealed will, you're very, you're very firm in that. Okay, I know that this is his revealed will, but now, today, you're also seeking to submit yourself to his will by seeking him in his word and through prayer, particularly with others, as you seek their counsel. So now, now your decision-making process is better than what it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And, and your process is better because you're being conformed to the revealed will of God, which shows you being the word of God, prayer, and community. Right, just to kind of shorthand it. Right, so now even their process of making tough decisions is a lot more biblical than your process of making tough decisions 10 years ago. So now, even if the choice isn't clear, you can at least know, hey, you know what? I don't really know what to do here, but I've got these people I've been praying with and they're kind of helping me decide. And, and I'm just going to take a little leap of faith because these guys were kind of in agreement that this seems like a good option. But this one is too, but I'm going forward in confidence because I'm not going out as this you know, solo guy and just this you know, cavalier, I'm just going to do whatever I want, cast lots, whatever, but I'm with these people, and I feel really good about this decision because I've got the backing of my brothers and sisters who I'm in one accord with, and, and, and we're aligned to God's word, and so, so you can at least, when the decision isn't clear, you at least go, but I got these people. They got my back. We're, we're seeking the Lord. Uh, they're asking me hard questions. There's a lot of good things going on. Now you can make a better decision with more confidence, and in faith, stepping out in faith, now, all of this isn't just for big decisions. We should want even the small decisions in our lives to be informed and shaped by a transformed mind. We're not to just simply trust our own wisdom, our own preferences or desires, and certainly not trends that are out there, just what's commonplace. So when it comes to making decisions, I have this in your notes on the other page. Uh, this is from George Mueller, the, uh, the great missionary. There's actually five or six things that he wrote down. I just put three uh, but, but read through this with me. This is, this is so great. He says, when he's making a tough decision, he says, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state 
that it has no will of its own in regarding to whatever given matter he's thinking about. He just wants to empty himself of his own will and desires, his own preferences. Well, I really want to do this. I really want to. Just, just get rid of that. He just tries to get to a place where his heart is just not there. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people, with us, is, is just right there. If you can just kind of flush out your own preference and desire in the matter and just kind of start from scratch, that's a good starting point. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in that state, it's usually just a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. You're, you're just like that close to making that right decision. Second thing he says, having done this, I don't leave the result to feeling of simple impression. If I do so, I make myself liable to great delusions. So we don't just go on a whim, it's in my gut, um, you know, those things, you kind of take those things into account, but if it's only that, you're kind of opening yourself up for what he says, great delusions. The third thing he says, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone with the Word, uh, without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Ghost guides us at all, He will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to them. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, yeah, we really have peace about this decision, and their decision is actually contrary to God's Word. Like, well, where did that peace come from? It didn't come from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit doesn't go against the Word. But that's kind of our trump card. We say, oh, well, I've got peace, so therefore I can do it. Right? But if it's contrary to God's revealed will, it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It's your peace. And that's why Mueller's saying, empty yourself of whatever it is that gives you peace. Like, I really want to do this because that'd be super fun and give me peace. Just get rid of that and just kind of center yourself on saying, I want to do God's will and I want to seek the Holy Spirit's guidance, but in accordance or through God's word. You're in the word saying, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me, conform me to your will, your revealed will. That's how we want to do things. So the first thing we can think through is we don't want to prioritize knowing God's concealed will. I'm not saying at all to never seek that. I'm not saying don't pray and ask God, Lord, what should I do? I don't, I'm, I'm lost. I'm stuck. I'm not saying don't do that, but don't prioritize knowing his concealed will. Prioritize knowing his revealed will. Make that your starting point as you seek maybe his concealed will. So I'm saying, just don't hear me wrong here. Just prioritize knowing his revealed will first. We are to firstly seek him in his revealed will. Seek first the kingdom of God. Delight yourself in the Lord that his will would be done. Because a lot of times we often treat prayers kind of like this sort of lazy shortcut. We don't really want to get into the word. We don't want to go ask people. We just want to pray and say, God, just show me what to do. Just tell me what to do. I'm not saying that's a bad prayer, but when that's the only thing or the first place we go, Sometimes we're kind of going around his revealed will and around the ways that he's revealed for us to actually seek him. Because if you say to him, God, just show me what to do. I mean, you imagine him saying, well, have you gotten my work? Because there's a lot of good stuff in there that can help you. Yeah, I read a few, but I didn't really like them. Can you just tell me straight? Uh, have you talked with other people and sought counsel? Because my word kind of tells you to do that. Yeah, I didn't really like their answer. Can you just tell me? Right, so we kind of treat prayer like this sort of autonomous little thing where we just want to feel what God wants us to do, and then we just say, well, I've got peace. But we actually don't do what is revealed in God's word, and we can't do that. So as you discern God's revealed will, you, you want to be in prayer. You want to pray those scriptures, even if they're the scriptures you don't like, because it goes against what you want to do. You've got to pray those scriptures. You want to have your will aligned to his revealed will. And, and be in prayer with other people over those things. Because they're going to be praying differently in a way that maybe you hear the scriptures because your heart's hardened towards that scripture, but someone prays in a certain way and you go, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, that, that's right. You also want to be, as Mueller says, uh, and as the apostles were here in community, talking with others, seeking wise counselors, maybe reading good books, good articles, seeking out your pastors. Just, just don't, don't make big decisions on your own. A job, relationships, marriage, parenting, buying a home, all these, these huge things. And not just for the big things, just those are, should be kind of the obvious things. But talk to people who can ask you good questions, who, who can press you. Who are you in one accord with, in, in heart? Maybe not in accord with like, like you know this person's going to tell you to do the opposite of what you want to do. I'm not talking about that kind of being in one accord. But someone who you know, they've got your back, they love you. 
They love the Lord. They want what's best for you, that kind of one accord, even if their answer is opposite of what you want. Who, who are you in one accord with in your life? Seek them out. Ask them to pray with you and pray for you and ask them for scriptures that you need to consider. Seek them out. Seek the counsel of, of your pastors or people who know you well, who can see through you, who know your faults, your shortcomings, who know kind of your leanings, your idols. The people that know you most, seek them out. Those people that will call you out on those things. That takes tremendous humility. Seek also those who have maybe made similar decisions and not just, again, the ones that have made the decision in favor of your preference, maybe even the people who regretted the decision that they made. Right? You're going, I really want to do this thing, and they did that, and they really regret it, so maybe I should ask them why they regret it. Don't go, I'm not going to ask them because they're just going to talk me out of it. I'm going to ask the guys that agree with me. Don't just go, go to many people. I, I go to men constantly in my life, particularly the ones who know my weaknesses, the ones that I know I can be very transparent with, very vulnerable with, the ones who can kind of readjust my GPS, so to speak. Uh, they, they know my faults. They know my, my leanings. They know kind of how my mind works. And so they're able to kind of correct me, nudge me back on the track or whatever it might be. Uh, it's important. You know, in our elder meetings, we, we always seek to be of one accord in line with the gospel. We go back and forth on decisions. We wrestle with scripture <laughs> We seek outside counsel when we're stuck, you know, our proverbial, we got to pick one of two guys kind of a thing, like, I don't know what to do, what should we do? Oh, let, let's, let's talk to Ron, let's talk to Tom, let's, let's, let's ask some other pastors who have been down this road with the, uh, before in their own church, let's see how they kind of did things, and then maybe, maybe something will help us, because we don't want to just do this thing alone, we, we, need, we need that outside help as well, we need that, which is why we want to invite you guys to, to join us once a month, just to pray for our church. So church, sometimes with, in life with these decisions, we, we do get paralyzed. But here's what I believe about God's will. His will will be done. His will will be accomplished in your life, no matter what. With all the tragedies and pains and sorrows, but also with your mistakes, your failures, your weakness, and your sin even, his will will be done. It will be done. It doesn't mean we make decisions flippantly or casually. Oh, well, God's will will be done. Doesn't really matter. We're just gonna do whatever. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. We can do our very best in following God's design, and we can still maybe realize later that was a mistake. We 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 messed up there. Some mistakes can be undone. Some can't. Some require repentance. Some just kind of require a realignment of where you're headed. But we do rest in the fact that God will work even in those things. His will will be done. The apostles trusted God's design and did all they could to honor and trust him. So the strategy for us to walking in God's will and his plan for your life, my life, is not a matter of knowing the future, but a matter of trusting God today. You want to do God's will? Trust God today. Get into his word today. Get into prayer through his word and with his people today. That, that's how you're going to discern God's will. That's how you're going to move forward. And so we're reminded of this as I, I close here. Christ died for our lives. He died to give us good gifts. He died to give us good works that we would walk in, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. He's written the masterpiece of our lives. He's, he's written your story. And the death and the resurrection of Christ proves that he's going to be with us always. He's, he, he's ascended to the right hand of God. He's ruling over your life right now. He's in control, church. Through everything, all the pain, sorrows, all your sin, everything, he's in control. He's in charge. His will will be done. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and we've been sealed by his Holy Spirit. So we're going to make mistakes but we know that in Christ, in his grace, Christ covers all those mistakes, but he also uses them for his purposes and remains with us even to the end of the age. So church, aim to know his revealed will. Ask to trust his concealed will. Don't desire a crystal ball to know the future. Desire to know Jesus and trust him for today. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us to do this. We, we face decisions every single day. We face big decisions frequently. We need the Lord. We need humility. We need his wisdom. 
Father, we come to you and we thank you that you give us your revealed will. How amazing is that? I mean, I'm not saying life is easy or decisions are easy or making choices easy, but you give us your revealed will. We've got this whole big book that reveals to us your desires and your will for our life, what should be our foundation. And and in that, you, you tell us that you've given everything we need for life and godliness. And we know that there are secret things that belong to you, and that can frustrate us because we like to be in control, and we would just honestly just want to be God. We want to know all things. But in that same verse, you you tell us that the revealed things belong to us and to our children so that we can follow you. That encourages me. That that gives me hope. That gives me confidence. So I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your revealed will. We thank you for the testimony of the faithful apostles who didn't know what to do in this moment. Things are chaotic. And their example to us, what they did They banded together. They sought you together. They were in one accord, praying with one another in the word together. What a great testimony. What a great heritage we have as a church to look at that example. Help us to become people more and more like that in our homes, in our families, in our community groups, in our church. People are seeking each other out, asking for prayer, praying with one another, praying for each other, encouraging each other with the word of God. Lord, would you transform us and conform us more and more into the image of Christ? We thank you for your faithfulness, your love towards your church, that you are indeed working in us, working your word in our hearts. We love you and we thank you. Thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.